and I was stunned. That man walked in front of a gun for me. I will never, ever, 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 ever forget that. Welcome to this week's Life is for the Living. I'm your host, Rebecca Richman. So for this episode, we're going to be listening to our guest stories that didn't really fit in anywhere else. These stories range from the small everyday moments that just kind of stick in your mind to real brushes with death and with history. But they also show us what makes our guests the way they are. So buckle up, y'all. This is going to be an exciting ride. We're going to start out gently enough with a story about Belinda's upbeat outlook on life. So my story is one of optimism, um, which is I was, this was years ago, driving down the road, I needed to get some gas in my car. And I see this sign on the side of the road. It's like a country road. And there's a sign that says, you know, at the whatever gas station, free globe. And I'm like, I'm all about travel and geography and understanding the world. And I'm like, I need a globe. I really want like a globe, a you know, spherical globe of the world. I'm like, perfect. I got to get gas and I'm going to get a globe. Like, this is a great day. Anyway, so I pull in, I get my gas and I go in and pay for it. I'm like, where's my globe? And they give me uh a Globe and Mail newspaper. So that's one of the newspapers in Toronto. It's called the Globe and Mail. So the free Globe was a newspaper. But I tell you, I was super excited about the possibility of getting getting the Globe. Seemed It seemed too good to be true. Turns out it was. But I believe, I was a believer. It's going to be a good day. Next is the story of Jan growing as a person told in three parts. We start with Jan as a child. I was friends with a woman, a girl from the projects who um, who complained that she, you know, her mother never put desserts in her lunches and, you know, she couldn't do this. And, couldn't, and I felt so sorry for her that I made sure I took extra dessert with me and shared it with her and got candies and stuff to give her. Turns out she was diabetic. And I was not doing her any favors, but I, I meant well. And the, the teacher, the, the mother told the teacher that, you know, somehow her, her kid's sugar level was just, you know, off the, ra- the wall um, and something was going on. So they observed me one time, you know, offering all these sweets to her and called my mother, who explained to me. This child is sick, but that lesson did not carry over to um, to me realizing that I don't know what is good for everybody. Then Jan grew up. She got married to a man, had two kids, got divorced, fell in love with a woman, got married again. But she still hadn't learned that she didn't always know best. In our seventh year together. We seem to be butting heads all the time. And I opened my mouth one time, one evening to say, I think it's over. 
and instead said, I think we need counseling. And so we went into counseling and learned how to communicate. We were not communicating. We were, because our personalities were just different enough. She was the talker and the, you know, we have to settle this. We have to solve this problem now kind of thing. And I'm the, I'm still thinking about it. You know, I wasn't ready to talk about it. So she had to learn to listen and I had to learn to speak up. And so we both improved. And to the point where the rest of our time, if if there was trouble, we just say, I think we needed a couple's dialogue. And we had learned how to do that for each other. And so, you know, it was, okay, when do you want to do that? It was ne- it was usually not right now. It usually was, you know, we set a t- set a time to do it so that we had both had time to think about it and to if if there was, you know, any anger involved, we had time to uh, to settle down and be willing to listen and uh, with an open mind and um, work for a solution. And so we did. And it just made for this wonderful, smooth relationship. And it was this lesson that then helped her repair a fracturing relationship with her son from her first marriage. He had been a difficult and frustrating kid. And when he came to live near her in New Mexico as an adult, his behavior continued to be erratic. And Jan assumed that he was on drugs. I got involved with Al-Anon. Um, because I thought my son's behavior, I thought he was an addict. And so I started going to Al-Anon. And, um, and I'm still with Al-Anon, although my son, it turns out, was a mental health issue. He has bipolar disorder and really wasn't doing much in the way of drugs, just cannabis. And that's, well, that's legal in New Mexico now. <laughs> it's no big deal. And it was his medicine, and he got approved for medical marijuana here in New Mexico several years ago. And that's just, you know, he's he's great at managing his illness, uh, and uh, with the use of of that plus two prescriptions. So I I failed as a parent, frankly, with him um, because back I mean he's he's fifty nine, and back when he was a kid. We didn't think kids could get mental illness. Illnesses don't show up until you're an adult. And so I thought he was just a screw up. And, you know, why doesn't he get the picture? And, you know, darn it, I keep telling you, you can't be doing those things. And he'd still go off and do those things. (laughs) Well, uh, later I learned that there was a reason for that. And me yelling at him and uh, telling them he was terrible was not very good parenting skill. <laughs> but uh, but I didn't learn that until I got involved with Al-Anon and learned that, uh, you know, I, I didn't cause it. I can't cure it. I was a terrible parent <laughs> to my son. I was a great parent to my daughter. And she's a great person. But, yeah, I... I yeah, that's that's my biggest regret. 
I have forgiven myself. Um, I have made my amends. My son has forgiven me. So all is well. But, um, but uh, you know, I, I learned too soon, too late. And I wish I had learned sooner. Shifting gears, the next story, which is actually my favorite story of the season, the next story is from Denise, and it demonstrates that even at a young age, she was A, very close to making history, and B, wasn't going to put up with any shit. I was working as a waitress, a cocktail, uh, not a restaurant waitress in a place called the Truth Coffee Shop in Harlem. My my summer of my senior year in high school, and it was a place that black artists hung out in. The whole black arts movement was happening. There were all these incredible people. You know, Leroy Jones was becoming Mama Baraka, different black poets and writers and stuff that came to, it was the first sort of uh, beatnik coffee house <laughs> transposed into blackness in Harlem. So I waited tables there and I used to wait on, there was two customers that used to sit in the corner and play chess. And one of them was a well-known martial artist that everybody in the community knew. I knew who he was, his name was Chakazumi. And there was this other very quiet gentleman that he played chess with. And I had a beef with one of the customers. And one of the customers used to come in who was a rabid black nationalist who had decided that he would say, light-skinned bitches like you got to get out of the car, you know, and whatever. And he was mean. And one day I snapped because I had never, I had been brought up to be not passive. So I was biting my tongue because waitresses get abused. And I finally couldn't take it. And he said, this chili, you need to test this chili. It's not hot enough. I said, test it your damn self. And I dumped the whole bowl of chili in his lap. And he jumped up screaming and ran out of the place. Well, but he ran back in with a gun to shoot me. And he's running and he's pointing this gun in my head and I'm peeing on myself. And the quiet guy who used to play chess with Chakazuma, who I knew, got up and walked right in front of the guy and said to him, my brother, blackness is not about skin color. And the guy turned white, I mean gray, and he spun around and ran out. Denise ran back to the kitchen and asked the manager who had just saved her. And he said, girl, don't you know, Mr. Malcolm? And I was like, that's Minister Malcolm? Because I knew who Malcolm X was, but I had never been to the mosque. And I was stunned. That man walked in front of a gun for me. I will never, ever, 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 ever forget that. That is right, my friends. Malcolm X stepped in front of a man with a gun to save the teenage Denise. The next story we have comes from Susie, and it does not have the same happy ending. And it's actually pretty brutal and deals with suicide, so you may want to skip forward a bit. Susie's brother was gay, although he didn't publicly acknowledge it because his parents would have disapproved. 
Nonetheless, he lived with his partner, Charlie, and their various pets. Yeah, my brother finally, he didn't come out. My brother never, people didn't come out in those days. They just kind of kept doing what they were doing. Quietly. Yes. And, and although my brother had a partner, Charlie, who prided himself on, on you, you probably wouldn't remember this, uh, a character in, in a TV series who was always trying to get out of the military by wearing a dress. Klinger, it's four o'clock in the afternoon and you're still in a house coat. Put on a dress. You never know who might be coming around. Yes, sir. Corporal Max Klinger on the TV series MASH famously cross-dressed to prove that he wasn't mentally fit for duty so that he would get sent home. Coming from a theater background, Susie had figured out that Charlie and her brother were gay, and she was pretty chill with it. And by then, I had figured that out, because if you, if you grew up in the theater, you do, you're very comfortable with gay right. With people of all sexual interests, uh, and 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 you're comfortable with a large number of different characters because and different people because you're going to play a you got to be prepared to play a lot of different roles. And as I said, I was fairly good. So my parents actually found out though about Charlie because Charlie used to. He prided himself on that care. He liked, yeah. he imi- imitated, and he was pretty blatant for that era. Okay. And uh, my brother was not. My brother was not. And, uh, and, and, and th- their relationship had a very sad ending because Charlie ended up committing suicide. And, uh, yeah. And his family blamed my brother. <sighs> But my brother was involved in the, the early days of gay coming out too. Not the coming out in the there was a big where there was a big era- arrest in New York. Oh yeah, um, the Stonewall Stonewall riots. Yes, yeah. He wasn't involved in that directly, but he certainly did know about it and yeah. followed it, and was because he was grappling with trying to adjust with and trying to figure out who he was as a gay person, and so. I've been through that with my brother. <laughs> and and I'm very close to my brother now. And and uh and when Charlie committed suicide. Cuz 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 my sister and I had to or my sister particularly had to go clean up the house uh where they were living. And he also when he killed himself, he killed the dogs and cats. It was just terrible because I said to my brother, he called me hysterically from the from the neighbors, and I said, do not go back in the house. Do not go back in the house. You don't need that, Bill. You do not need that. And he killed my brother's dog. And, uh, and it was just, it was a terrible, uh, obviously Charlie was pretty ill, but it was a pretty terrible scene. It was pretty terrible and very dramatic. And uh, for all of us, but but for, for my sister had to go clean up the house. Uh. And while that was a big trauma, it isn't just the big traumas that can linger. Sometimes the small things that happen at the wrong time can send you into a spiral as well. 
I'll share just one quick story about that because I had my, when I had my 80th birthday, I had the worst, worst depression after that. Even though everybody said, oh my God, there were so many people there and it was, was so wonderful. I have never felt so incompetent and unneeded in my whole life. I had a tech team that they, they thought they were helping me, but they convinced me that all my ideas were really dumb and, um, and it was with too much work and no one would ever want to watch this. And it was, my birthday was really, it looked like on, when it was happening, it looked like it was a big successful, a big event and really, I should be really happy. And I went into the worst depression I've ever been in. Yeah. It was really traumatic. Yeah. And they didn't mean, they did not mean to put it that way. Yeah. But they convinced me that that I was technologically obsolete and that I didn't know anything about people, and yeah, it was a horror. It was it was really a sad, horrible experience. Yeah, it took a long time to get out of it. And now, to bring the mood back up, two more stories of celebrity run-ins by Denise. Denise actually grew up with music royalty. Although, as a kid, she wasn't necessarily aware of it. Like one of the guys, his name was Farouk, and he was, you know, aspiring trumpet player. And we'd drop by Farouk's house, and his mom would be in the kitchen ironing, <laughs> and his name was Farouk Daoud, and that was his name. He didn't change his name, you know. And we said, hi, Mrs. Daoud. <laughs> you know how you talk to somebody's mother? And so one day Farouk said, you know, my mom's making a comeback. <laughs> and I was like, a comeback to what? <laughs> and and, and uh, he said, no, she's she's opening a Basin Street. And I was like, Basin Street? Because I was like, maybe his mother's singing in the choir. But then I was like, no, they're Muslims. So they don't have a choir. And, and I said, Basin Street? As what? And, and he said, my mom's that's not her name, Mrs. Daoud at Basin Street. Her name was Dakota Staten, and she's an amazing jazz vocalist, you know. But that was the neighborhood. Eric Dolphy lived around the corner. My cousin's cousin, Roy Haynes, lived, you know, five blocks away. There was, um, and there were folk singers because I hung out as a kid. My parents' friends were like Leon Bibb, Paul Robeson saying happy birthday to me when I was a little kid, you know. So Peter, Paul, and Mary were in and out of the house. Uh, John Lewis from the MJQ was Leon's wife's brother, you know. And um, so the crew that uh, I hung around with, uh, Blake Jr., you know, they, they, well, he, he lives in the city, but... Count Basie was down the street and had a big uh, swimming pool. They used to have pool parties. With all those people hanging around, there is one story that really stands out. I grew up with, um, in my teen years, with a number of young people whose parents were well-known jazz musicians. And... 
But you know, when you're a teenager, people's parents are just kind of like their parents. And it, it had no me real meaning. But I hung out with a group of guys who were really into jazz. They all were learning instruments and whatever. And I was a big jazz fan. And we used to go over to this one person's house whose daughter, adopted daughter, um, was at my age in junior high school. And the fellows would go in the basement. And the wife of the jazz musician was kind of like a den mother for us. She would yell at people and say, if you stand out in the street smoking that weed, you're going to get busted. So if you're going to smoke weed, you do it in our basement. And I was like, whoa, she's really cool. You know, my mother would have never. Um, so anyway, the musician I'm talking about is a man named John Coltrane. And Train would sit in the basement and he'd be in a corner and he was very quiet, introverted kind of guy. And he would be practicing his horn, fingering it and not talking. And the guys who were all kind of showing off, trying to be hip, you know, and they would be talking about, well, this, this tune was really right on it, blah, 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 this. And, and I said, I interrupted and said, I like ballads. And they told me I was stupid. You know, I was not hit because I did not like that. I, I didn't like up-tempo, hardcore, bebop, whatever, whatever. And they were going to take away my hitness card. And all of a sudden, there was a voice that came from the corner. She's right. It's about the space between the notes. And they all shut up because John Coltrane had spoken. <laughs> and me, the dingbat girl, was had said the right thing. And I have never forgotten that. I laugh every time I think about the looks on their faces when Train said, she's right. It's about the space between the notes. So check out ballads and check out the space between and it wasn't just as a child that Denise was hanging out with celebrities without knowing it. As a member of the Black Panthers, she actually went on an official trip to Algiers and then the People's Republic of the Congo. But as she says, And that's a whole nother story. The Russians tried to assassinate us. Yes, that is right. A guest mentioned Russians tried to assassinate her. And I didn't ask any follow-up questions, so we're just going to have to leave that story to your imagination. After that unknown adventure, Denise and her friends were traveling around Europe for a bit, and they ended up in Cannes, France, to promote the film The Murder of Fred Hampton at the Counter Film Festival, which was an alternative to the main Cannes Film Festival. And, as one does when one is in Europe, Denise was looking for a little relaxation. There was no reefer in Europe. Everybody smoked hash, and I didn't like hash. It was too strong. I wanted a joint, you know, and I smelled weed when I walked into the lobby, and there were all these hippies sitting on the floor smoking a joint. So I went over and sat down with them. So having spotted a bunch of hippies with the good reefer in a hotel, Denise and her friend Kathleen joined in 
and got chatting to a man named Dennis, who was very enthusiastic to meet the members of the Black Panther, and in fact was inviting them over to hang out at his ranch in New Mexico. He had just been jilted by whoever he was going to marry, from the mamas and the papas. We were we smoking weed, and he was—he just was like, he was like, your name is Denise, and my name is Dennis, and we had this big ranch, and I think it was to out, outside of Taos, New Mexico. And he said, "You Panthers can come and practice your guns and whatever." And I'm lovesick, and I was like, "Okay, dude, pass the joint." You know, I mean, whatever, because I didn't know it was he was Dennis Hopper at the time. He just was this hippie dude in the sitting in the hotel lobby in Cannes, and uh, and there were all these people with like tie-dye hair and what, you know. And then he took us to, he took me and Kathleen, he had tickets to the big film at the festival that year, A Night in Venice, I think it was. And he pulls up in this limousine, this hippie dude. And and I was like, what's your last name? And he said, Hopper. It was so funny because it never occurred to me, how come this hippie dude with no shoes has tickets to the premiere and and took me and Kathleen and then we realized that they were that he was Dennis Hopper but he did ask me to marry him because his name was my name was Denise and his name was Dennis and with that showstopper we are going to end this episode of stories Join us next week for the penultimate episode of the season in which I ask our guests for their best advice for living. Thank you for listening as always. And if you have any suggestions about future guests, topics, or just want to chat in general, you can reach us at, at life is for the L on Twitter and Instagram or email us at life is for the living podcast at gmail.com. The Life is for the Living podcast is written by me, Rebecca Richmond, and produced by Marco Berlow.